Hello there, fellow thinkers. Uh, buckle up for this one. This is a bit of a longer episode than usual. This is one in which Cameron schools us on the history of critical theory. There were several aha moments in here for me um, as we parse out um, what can be said that's helpful of the past of that and the things that we need to watch out for as a Christian. So uh, listen carefully here. It's a bit of a slog, but you'll learn some great things if you stick with it to the end. Thanks for thinking along. Hello, and welcome to Thinking Out Loud. I'm your co-host, Nathan Rittenhouse. And I'm your co-host, Cameron McAllister. So it's back to school season for many people. Some have already started, some are gearing up for that. But did you know that teachers also sometimes need to learn things before the school year starts? And Cameron was just in Oklahoma speaking to teachers. And um, I thought this would be a fun thing, Cameron, for a little back to school, maybe part one. Um or just as a setup for Cameron was speaking over the last week, I was too, and we might we're going to debrief on that a little bit. But particularly interested in what the assignment you had in Oklahoma was, Cameron. Could you catch folks up on if you were at the event in Oklahoma? This can be a rehash for you, and for all of us who weren't, this can be a uh, introduction to it. But could you catch us up on who the audience was and what the assignment was, and then I have some questions for you. Of course, yes. And also, on a somewhat poignant note, I had to miss my own son's first day of school to do this. <laughs> okay. So that was kind of a sad, sad moment. But yeah. Yeah, that's a bummer. He'll have another first day of school next year. Well, that's true. Nathan always was the sentimental one between the two of us. <laughs> but this was, yes, this making, was... Making so every, lemonade out of the women. There you go. Every now and then you get an assignment that is really fun for lack of a better word. It's just an interesting topic. So a friend of mine got in touch with me. He works with the Academy of Classical Christian Studies in Oklahoma City, which is a very fine school and a major operation over there. And he asked me to come and speak about critical theory in the classroom and some of its practical outworkings. So this was a two-day event. The first, the first day I gave a lecture on critical theory basically looking at three questions. Is it new? What is it? And where is it going? And on the second day, I really only looked at one question, and that was, why do we like it so much? It has been critical theory, if you, by any standard, has been wildly successful in the sense of being a major influence and presence in politics, the media, and education. Now, so, and so we talked about that. Well, let me just yeah. clarify here. You were speaking to the educators, not to the students, correct? Correct. And this is not to the students. So this was to the the teachers. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think the reason this is important is I would say that I don't hear critical theory as quite as much of a buzzword on the political scene as much anymore. I mean, maybe other things are taking over that, but right. definitely on the educational front, this is still a live question. And so I'm not surprised that you were invited to speak on that topic um, because I think we're, yeah. Anyway, go on and say more about um, how that, so the first day you're kind of giving a lecture on it and then the second day. Yeah. And well, it was interesting because I went into this and did a lot of, I, this was, so I'd given a, a lecture on critical theory before and it's, it's out there on the interwebs. You can find it on YouTube. And that was, I'll speak in euphemisms. That was an interesting experience. <laughs> the Q and a <laughs> in particular. I thought it was, it was a great talk. Experience. Just for anybody who wants to know, Nathan approved of it, although his audience did not. Right. So that was, but it was a great learning experience. And so because of that Q&A, I was able to go and try to 
deepen the, the lecture and, and enrich it a little bit. What I really wanted to do, Nathan, was give some actual concrete history to the ideas. I think that is so incredibly important. In America, we're predisposed to want to sometimes dispense with the history of the idea because we just want to get to the truth of it. Okay, is this true? Is it not? Does it, you know, does it work or does it not? Who does cares it help me or is it going to get that's me? a whole lot of extra Right. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole lot of extra work. It takes it's so painstaking. I remember Alistair McIntyre, who is a major proponent of the you need the history of the idea, you need the context that's crucial for actually understanding it. He had to I mean, I remember he he did a couple of back and forths in a journal a scholarly journal with somebody else who was saying, no, no, you just, I don't care about the history. Just give me the philosophical arguments. And he was making the case without that history, you're not really going to properly comprehend the philosophical arguments. I'm with McIntyre on that. And so on the first day, I wanted to look at the Frankfurt School, which was the, that's the birthplace of critical theory as we know it. But I also wanted to paint a broader picture and show that there was an ancient precedent for critical theory as well. If you look to ancient Greece, you'll see numerous precursors. But really, the, the money statement for me is Protagoras's man is the measure of all things. Protagoras famously said he was agnostic on the question of the existence of the gods. Maybe they exist. Maybe they don't. We can't know. I can't know. Here's what we can know. We can know human experience. We can concern ourselves with the polis. We can concern ourselves with building a civilization. That's what matters. So we need to restrict our thought to political questions and society questions of, of social thought. So in some ways, this is speaking in you know broad generalizations, but that's the starting point for a good deal of modern thought. You start with human beings. Mm, and okay. that's where and, and all of your thinking begins there, right? You look at man, man is the measure of all all things. Critical theory, that was the starting point for critical theory. It was, the Frankfurt School wasn't called the Frankfurt School in Germany. It was called the Institute for Social Research. And that's what they were interested in. They were interested in society. And they were pioneers in many fields. I think, I mean, critical theory, we gotta, we've got to give them credit for the kind of pop cultural analysis that we just take for granted. They were the first, they called it mass culture, or they would derisively call it the culture industry. They were the first when they ended up in America, they were the first to look very closely at cultural trends and, and music, jazz, whatever was, was capturing the pop, popular imagination and look at the ideas behind it, look at the hidden levers of power, all of that stuff. One of the funny okay. statements from Max Horkheimer was, yeah, there's a metaphysics of bubblegum. <laughs> so <I> mean, <laughs> so is, is there a sense in which, all right, so... Where, where we lose people and where you lost people the first time you gave this lecture is mm -hmm. critical theory. If, if you're coming to this, critical theory is bad. I'm not sure how to define it, but I know that it's bad. And Cameron is saying, look at where it came from. And there was some helpful stuff in the beginning. If you can't make out the distinction between right. those two things, you're going to really, really struggle here. And that's what happened with your first audience is you said, I disagree with it. I think it's misguided. Here's the history of where it came from. And people said, so why do you love it? You're like, you, you weren't listening right. to what he's saying. So it has become a, a flashpoint and a trigger word f at, at some point in the conservative mind. So we're talking about something that we fundamentally, and we'll get to why we think it's misguided and unhelpful, but you're better off if you understand what the thing you're disagreeing with is. So just hang in there with us for a little bit. 
that's that's one part. The second part is let me give a, is, is is there is there a yeah. sense in which you know like if you ever watched the Honest Trailer YouTube channel where they go through and yes, say like Honest Movie yeah, Trailers. Uh, okay, Honest <laughs> Movie Trailers. I think they are some of the funniest things ever. But there's a, is there a sense in which critical theory in its original social analysis of like the cultural shaping institutions kind of was like a honest trailer review of saying like look this is how this is marketed but if you look at the principles and the ideas that are actually being displayed here this is what's going on is that too flippant of an mm-hmm. analogy or a connection to make no no it's not because what what critical theory wanted to do was part the curtain so to speak so you could see what's going on behind the scenes right so here let's say here's a song by for instance Let's say, here's a song by the Rolling Stones. I can't get no satisfaction. Ostensibly, this is all about freedom and, you know, sexual freedom in particular and, you know, being uninhibited and people who listen to it are, quote, rebellious. The critical theorists are the ones who said, yeah, you're so rebellious when you go and be a good consumer and buy this single and put money <laughs> in the record company's pockets and support the Rolling Stones and give them their lavish lifestyle. Yeah, you're what a rebel you are. How when your mom buys subversive. you your rebel apparel. Oh man. Yes, and exactly. Or the same could be said, this is to our generation. So you like a band called Rage Against the Machine. Yes, they're clearly so rebellious. And oh, look, they have the com- communist manifesto in the album artwork of their album. That's just amazing. They're so rebellious. Meanwhile, they're millionaires and they're doing these tours and you're being a good consumer <laughs> buying their stuff. So, so irony theory is was part actually, of the irony is part of it. So critical theory was actually quite sophisticated in the way it looked at how your how empty consumerism, particularly in a place like America, makes people feel like they're in like they're expressing themselves, they're free and uninhibited, but really they're just doing what they're supposed to be doing. Same is true of Oh, so you you want to you want to take a vacation and get away and and have some nice recreation. So you have to spend thousands of dollars on a cruise ship or on an all inclusive, and you have to drink all this alcohol that puts you into a state of total oblivion and take these drugs and then go dance in these loud throbbing discos or or nightclubs. Yeah, you're you're clearly so free. Again, you're just being a good consumer. There's nothing. So you're. It's not like you're somehow not being doing being a good per you know being a good little consumer and doing what you're what you know the powers that be want you to do so yes in some ways it, it it is it's not too glib of an example to talk about those honest movie trailers that's but let's let's back up a second let me give you my quick definition of critical theory so that we mm. have, have have you know we can work with that the two that i used in in this in these lectures and i do think they're helpful you do you can take them with a grain of salt because this is this is more sort of my my definition and there are a lot of you know a lot of ink has been spilled on what precisely critical theory is but broadly speaking it's a methodology for identifying hidden systems of domination in a culture so it's it's a methodology for identifying those hidden systems of do, do not, of domination in a culture but then secondly and this is the, this is the little this one requires a little bit of explanation but it is also a worldview it's a critical theory is a worldview with an ambiguous anthropology and it's also a quasi mystical utopian vision well, that's, there's a that second for you. part is yeah, there's a thesis, but that second part is what makes those are all of the problematic elements from my perspective as a Christian are in that are are in that second definition there. The vague 
the you know ambiguous anthropology and the equally ambiguous utopian vision that animates it. Mm. That's what makes critical theory damaging in some of its expressions. So give us a little of that history then. So you're talking about couching these ideas sure. in a historical context. What are some of the... Yes. Yeah, connect those dots for us. Yeah, so there, there are some... Again, I have to speak in some generalizations, but that's okay. I'm, I'm not gonna. I'm gonna be done dying the death of a thousand qualifications. Critical theory, as we know it, begins at the Frankfurt School in 1923. The most fruitful years of the Frankfurt School are really from 33 through 1940. Now you might notice, hey, we're smack dab at the beginning of National Socialism in Germany here. You're correct. So around 33, I think it was maybe 34, the the leadership of the Frankfurt School decided we've got we need to get out of Germany now, and so they moved. They they established offices in Geneva for a little bit and in Paris, but then again, Paris had to be shut down eventually because then Paris was occupied. But the the real permanent home away from home for critical theory was at Columbia University. It was sort of a loose partnership with Columbia University, but basically they got a building, a property in Manhattan, and what was. What I think is really important about this is it gives them a sense of distance from from Germany. So they're 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 away from the the absolute catastrophe that's happening in Germany, the Second World War. But they also have enough financial stability to not have to cater to an audience or worry really about a constituency. So they're operating with relative freedom in isolation, and they're able to pursue their own interests as an institution. So that's part part of what's amazing about the Frankfurt School is that it lasted through so much hmm. so many tumultuous circumstances. It didn't fall apart. They continued publishing their made their major publication was called the Zeitschrift, which means the the writing of the time. And they continued to write in German even when they were in America. They didn't start writing in English until the nine, until 1950, I think. And and how were they funded? So they were funded by basically some wealthy patrons and parents of some of their members who invested and, and basically set up an endowment for the Frankfurt School. Hmm. And they, now they weren't, they weren't exactly swimming in cash. And a lot of that cash was, a lot of it went to, they basically supported a lot of people, scholars who were emigrate, emigrating to the United States. And okay. a lot of the money went toward that. And they still haven't released to this day, I don't think they've released all the the names of those that they supported, but a lot of major figures who who they supported. So they were generous with with it as well. But the major people, to bear in mind, the names who have some, who are somewhat household names now would be Max Horkheimer, who was who was the director for a while, just a man of amazing intellectual energy and capacities. And then Theodore Adorno, who was incredibly prolific, just published so so many books. And also Herbert Marcuse. Marcuse distanced himself from the Frankfurt School toward the the end of his career, but he's really the bridge from the Frankfurt School to the United States. And he became one of the more notorious critical theorists in the academy. He was big on the sexual revolution. He where was. Does, where he does was Derrida the, fit he was in the one there? Who are, so Derrida. So this that's what I would call second generation critical theorists. Okay. So those are guys who, so Derrida was not part of the Frankfurt school, but he took lines of their thought and continued to develop them. The two biggest second wave scholars would be Jacques Derrida, who you just named, and then Michel Foucault. And of, of the two of those, Foucault is the much clearer writer, I think. 
Derrida is deliberately difficult to read and impenetrable because Derrida, a key assertion of Derrida's is going to be that language is highly problematic because power structures are embedded in our language. And part of what the job of deconstruction as a technique is to ferret out those hidden agendas and motives of power. Foucault is a historian and he's more, he's going to give what, what, what sometimes he would call a genealogy. You take a, a given institution, whether that's the prison system, so Discipline and Punish might be one of his most famous books, or History of Madness, where he looks at the asylum and he looks at the, the treatment of insanity down the ages, or sexuality. So from Foucault, we're going to get a lot of the notions of, for instance, gender is nothing more than a social construction. So that's the that's the kind of stuff that happens there. So these guys are are important, but they're carrying on a line of thought that began with the Frankfurt School. But the but Herbert Marcuse is also the guy who says we need to be polymorphously perverse, and this is a way to establish freedom from the tyrannical status quo as well. Another name associated is Heinrich Heine, who was a psychologist. He's the he is the man who actually coined the phrase sexual revolution. We owe that to Heinrich Heine. So the Frankfurt School Embedded in the Frankfurt School are the seeds of what would become the sexual revolution and a lot of the most the more explosive thought of the 1960s, which we're now seeing a full flowering of, I think, today. What I wanted to point out, though, and what I want to point out again today, is that the original people associated with critical theories, particularly Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno, were a good deal more hesitant than their successors they mm. because at first they, they were they were pretty revolutionary at first and so in 1923 a lot of their thoughts were they were younger they were more optimistic as they got older and they began to see so one of the big ideas of critical theory is that you have theory theory is absolutely essential theory is how you chip away at all of the lies of of the status quo and uncover and expose what's underneath but then you need praxis, which is a loaded term. That's a Marxist term. Praxis, which is practice, but in some ways that can sometimes be shorthand for revolution. You got to, You have to tear down some of these institutions so that you can put just and classless ones in their place, right? But and one of the but what happens is, of course, Adorno and Horkheimer and all of these guys begin to see. They see Soviet Russia. And they see what some of the outgrowth of praxis actually looks like. And they became, I mean, the only way to put it is more sort of apolitical at the end of their lives. To the point where some of their future students of the Frankfurt School felt that they had betrayed their original vision because they were recommending a kind of a quietism. Well, you see all this injustice, you're giving us all this theory, and then you don't want to do anything about it? And that's not, I don't think that's an inconsistent thing to say, by the way. but. So Horkheimer that's interesting. Can I jump in here? Yeah. Because I think, yeah. is there a sense here in which sometimes, particularly I think in political realms, we don't have terms or limits, or even within our lives, we don't have the time to watch our ideas come to fruition and to see the consequences of the right. logical conclusion of our ideas. And so it seems like in this, the original crew got a glimpse of what the practical outworking of their theory actually was. Am, am I getting, am I following you there? 
They did. And part of what makes it, see, this is where history is helpful. And if you actually want clarity in terms of what, if well, if you want to think holistically, it will hurt you if you want easy, pat answers. So another reason why the, the Max Horkheimer and crew made some people really angry is because they departed from orthodox Marxist, Marxists in, in a number of different ways. They felt that a lot of Marxist theories were crudely materialistic and way too oversimplified. They, they distrusted totalizing systems of thought. And Marx, Marx was a brilliant thinker, but he was fiercely reductionistic. Marx is building on Hegel. So again, you, sorry, you got to get some history of ideals. Hegel, notoriously abstruse philosopher, if you've ever, you know, endured the torture of the phenomenology of spirit, you'll know what I'm talking about. But he, you know, basically, in very simple terms, Hegel was arguing that history is reaching, is, is moving towards some point of total culmination. So mm. some, some sort of consummation. But he's thinking of this in secular terms. This is a secular kind of eschatology is what it was. Marx is going to build on that, but he's going he's gonna to filter it through purely economic terms. So for Marx, the, the, the engine driving everything, all, all of the problems of our world is class conflict. And so that future historical culmination for Marx is going to be the classless society after, com after, sorry, after capitalism finally collapses under its many, many different contradictions. That was, that was Marx's theory, by the way, was that cap capitalism, maybe you need to, some revolutionaries need to come, al come along and speed up the process, but capitalism eventually will fall. It cannot sustain itself because of all of its contradictions. That's, that was his theory. And then when that happens, then you eventually usher in the classless society critical theorists begin to distance themselves from that. So because they they just felt that the whole way culture works and our different political institutions work together is more complex than that. And so theory has to, you have to wrestle with these ideas and go back and forth. And they grew more hesitant about revolution because they saw its potential for lots of bloodshed. And Hang so on. Question. I'm saying that right, yeah. Well, yeah. so just before you, before you move on there, so when you gave your definition of critical theory, two parts, if I remember correctly, the first one was saying that the sense of analyzing power within the system, but then the second one was that it's a worldview. What mm -hmm. is is the critical theory worldview now? What did those original guys think? Did so? You're talking about Marx's eschatology. Was there a pseudo-secular eschatology that went along with them, or was it about the wrestle with the idea and that was the point, or was there something they were actually working toward in its original theoretical academic iteration? Yeah, and all very fair questions. Yes, there was, I would argue, now this is Cameron speaking, I would argue there is a secular eschatology there in Horkheimer and Adorno in the, in the Frankfurt School. It's a little bit less clear than with Marx. Marx is just so straightforward and transparent about what he thinks is happening. For them, they did believe in, they used the word reason in a kind of mystical sense. For them, reason didn't mean instrumental, didn't mean instrumental understanding of the world or, you know, harnessing different systems of logic to get what we want. They saw that more as pragmatism. For them, reason indicated some future 
ideal state where we were no longer alienated and we saw things as they actually were. We saw beyond all of the contradictions that so many German thinkers have talked about. Think about Immanuel Kant, who draws that division between the noumenal and the phenomenal, or you know, if you want a, a simpler way of breaking it down, Francis Schaeffer's upstairs, downstairs. Yeah, well, hang on. All right, so that's a really helpful answer. On the other hand, that strikes me as anti-postmodern. So, yes, it should strike okay. you as anti-postmodern. Okay, yeah. yeah. So, so I just want to make sure that I'm correct here that they had a vision of a time in which truth could be known universally. Yes, they did. I was shocked when I when I was actually doing some digging, and and so my thinking here was really animated by a wonderful book called The Dialectical Imagination by Martin Jay. I'm sure it's a bestseller. It, uh, yeah, let me tell you, with a title like that, you just can't lose. You'll find it at stands at your airport. But he, well, he was actually, so this book has the seal of, of approval from different critical theorists, including Herbert Marcuse. He's one of the endorse, endorsements on the back. Martin Jay is a fantastic scholar. He teaches at UC Berkeley. He corresponded with these guys. He had a relationship with Theodore Adorno and and Horkheimer, I believe. he was. So he knows critical theory on, in a pretty deep and personal way. But that was one of the, yeah, sort of the aha moments for me as I was reading it. Yes, they did believe. Now, the older they got, the more despairing Max, Max Horkheimer in particular got. Now, think about, again, let's bring in the helpful aid of history here. Most of these men were Jewish. Most of them had been forced to flee Germany because of Nazi occupation. And they had also seen communism in Soviet Russia. Some of them had actually experienced incarceration because of that, because they, they had some one, one of one guy associated with the Frankfurt school, whose name is escaping me right now, took a trip to Soviet Russia to hand in his communist card. And, you know, he just felt it was good, you know, intellectual integrity to explain why I don't want to pay my dues anymore. He was six months he was imprisoned there and he nearly he was nearly killed and got out of there. So these people had firsthand experience with the outworkings of some of these utopian visions. And they grew more wary as they got as they got older. And Horkheimer in particular was was a de- had a deeply despairing kind of tone. But they did have that sort of there was a sort of mystical vision embedded in there and in, in, in what they meant by reason. But even today, that I think that continues a little bit because the notion is even second wave critical theorists, deconstructionists, and, and all of these different post-critical studies, they're all concerned with emancipation, with freedom, right, from tyranny and bringing greater degrees of freedom so that people can be free and that we can usher in a society that is just and equitable. So that's still... There's no real agreement on what exactly that would look like and what even human beings are. We're really, you know, there's a lot of agreement on what we're not, what we aren't, what we shouldn't be. We shouldn't be part of the patriarchy. We shouldn't be, you know, beholden to to, to any of these old cultural conventions and gender norms. But what is a person actually and what is a person for? It's pretty ambiguous there, but there's still that quasi... That's why it's hazy but there's still this u- utopian vision sort of hanging over all of this. Yeah, okay, so that that is that's a big aha moment for me. Thank you for that answer. And also thank you for your research on this because I would imagine there are a number of people listening like thanks for doing that Cameron so I didn't have to. Um <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, so okay. Just to get my my thoughts to catch up with my words here. 
the I guess the the term of like what we would consider some classic postmodern terminology, um, which is funny to use the word classic postmodernism, but um, that there isn't, isn't a transcendent <laughs> signifier, right? So there isn't this overarching, sure, knowable truth. So are we? So is the confusion of our time the fact that we're trying to live out? What are we trying to do here? So. Like, okay, I get it. You got Jewish people who grew up under Nazi Germany. They're critiquing power. They watch it come to fruition in the Soviet Union. So Marx picks mm-hmm. up on this, mm-hmm. thinks through it. It doesn't work out. Everybody, you know, okay. Um, I, I, I get that and understand that critique of power. I don't understand what's animating the utopian vision. And, and I guess this is my fundamental struggle here is like, it's easy to take things apart. Then what? Yes. And that, and that, so, so yep. there's all like I don't know how to connect the the postmodern academic feel, the ethos that I feel like we've been living in for the last like 15 years, with take everything apart. Um, versus what is it that we're trying to do? And and that's not a question of like, well, theory doesn't yep. matter. It's only about pragmatism. It's like it doesn't matter if you're making great time if you don't know where you're going, sort of thing, or if you even think there's a destination. So this is where I think people that think like me get a little sideways and saying, I understand where you're coming from and there's some value to what you're saying, but I need more than that. Yes. So broadly speaking, where critical theory can be very helpful is in showing us some of the inner workings of corruption in our culture. As Christians, we're not going to, we're going to be horrified by some of this and saddened, but not surprised. We, after all, would agree that human beings are fallen. We would say human beings are fallen. So this is where Christians end up looking like hardened realists. So that's human nature in action. Many people who practice different forms of critical theory or who are heir to this school of thought are operating with a with an anthropology that posits human beings as either neutral or somewhat good. Mm. That's mm-hmm. a that's a that's actually a devastating intellectual error to make. And it will set you up either for great naivete or despair. Oh, can I, can Those, I give an anecdote that's the here? End of the road there. Yeah. Can I give an anecdote here? So yeah. I was at, all right, I'm going to say this. So I was at the national, um, underground railroad freedom museum in Cincinnati a couple weeks ago with a theological, uh, variety of people. And the debriefing on the backside of that is those who I would consider to be more progressive or liberal could not process and could not handle what they saw in the imagery about slavery. And I was sitting there thinking like, how in the world is this shocking to you? Like we, we know about slavery and it was awful and it was broken and it was bad. And what does it tell us about the world is it tells us that there is sin and it's real and look at what people have been able to do to other people. And so like, I was sad about it, but this like shock and horror of Paul was like, I just can't believe you're like, you are 67 years old. Like, how is this? Like I was having a meltdown at people who I don't think were feigning shock and being appalled by it. But for me, like if you look at the, if, because I'm, I'm operating from a standpoint of the brokenness of humanity and our capacity to, to do evil things, I actually have a vocabulary for that brokenness that I would say gives me a similar critique of um, unjust power structures, but it's 
because it's a it's a brokenness of a good thing rather than something we're trying to construct. So anyway, that just might be tangential, but in my mind, it's connected of like how you view humans. So, so then the outcome of that is if, if humans aren't bad and sinful, then the system must be wrong. And so to me, it seems like there's a link there in that process of thinking that if a human is basically neutral or a good creature inherently, and there's brokenness and, and misuse of power in the world, then it has to be a system's fault because it can't be an individual's fault. Am I way off base there or is that fit with what you've been learning too? Yeah. And well, I mean, because the, the question really is, is, is society the corrupting influence or where, I mean, where do we locate responsibility here? These guys, the early guys discovered though, that education alone is not the answer. There are plenty of people who had all the culture, all the education they they needed and still were perpetrating horrendous crimes. So there is, yeah, I think there's, there's a predisposition to think, to operate as though human beings are in that neutral, we're basically good category. So that big, one of the major deficiencies for critical theory, as if you can call it a school of thought, and there's so much, there are so many different parts to this, has to do with its its way of looking at human nature. Because it's unwilling mm-hmm. to to see human beings as as fallen, which makes sense. Again, these these people are not thinking in terms of a Christian worldview. So why would they? But when you when you take away that piece, so much about human behavior looks incomprehensible. I'm going to ask you a mean question because I know you have another half hour that we should go through to jump from that point in time to this point in time. But can you start to turn us in the direction of where we're at in a modern sense and your critique then of saying, okay, given this history, here are the misguided elements of it. I think you just named one is that it's an incorrect anthropology from a Christian perspective. So if we don't want to be flippant with our critique of critical theories, but we want to actually put our thumb on the pulse of like, here's our issue. You would say, number one, it's a false anthropology from a Christian perspective. Where do we go from here? Yes. Well, it's a false anthropology. And where do we go is a very key question. It's I've tried to point out that utopia, the word itself from Sir Thomas More, means literally nowhere or no place. So the idea that we could have some sort of a classless society or any kind of society with no human conflict whatsoever is a modern fantasy. Actually, it's probably not a modern fantasy. That's probably just a deeply human fantasy. Now, hmm. there have been a number of social experiments down the ages of small colonies and communities where people tried to have some kind of a utopian society, and they were disastrous. Again, because of that that underestimation of human nature. So my soundbite for this, and I'm always wary of soundbites, is that critical theory can do a lot of damage on its way to nowhere. Now, can we gain some key insights into covert power structures and the ways in which you know power is consolidated in a given society? Yes, actually we can. There, there is a lot of insight to be gained there. And you can gain insight from this this kind of stuff without buying into all of its assumptions. That's worth pointing out because our society is so polarized right now. 
So that's why folks are tempted sometimes to think along the lines of, well, Cameron said some positive things about critical theory. So I guess he's a critical theorist. Well, no. I mean, I've said some positive things about Friedrich Nietzsche before or Sigmund Freud. And I don't buy into their their key assumptions. I have massive disagreements with them and part ways with them in huge, you know, on, on major issues. But I can still glean insight from them. The same is true of, of critical theory. It's not the notion that, well, you said that we could gain some insight from critical theory. Therefore, you're compromising. That's, again, that's a polarized kind of ideological way of looking at it. You can gain some insight from this without buying into all of its assumptions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's that's worth bearing in mind. I do think it is its core assumptions of the, the you know the hazy anthropology, the notion that the status quo is necessarily unjust. I think those are deeply, deeply flawed. And I think the outworking of trying to tear up all of our traditions, which critical theory really put into serious. I mean, I think there's serious acceleration from critical theory. I think that has been very damaging. So I'm gonna I want to be clear about that. Yeah. What's the who who gets to decide who the modern power holders are? Because that seems to be like the the Christian and I think rightly concerned. You see these charts of like, here's what it means to be an oppressor. Um, and mm-hmm. I think I've shared this story before. I was at a well-known university. You have to have good test scores to get in there. And somebody who's a black student was talking about being a victim. And then she said, But I also have to recognize that I'm an oppressor because I can see. And that makes me an oppressor of people who are blind. And, and when she made that statement, then I was like, ooh, okay, that's helpful because now we're talking about very different definitions of what it means to be an oppressor. Um, so are you an inherently an oppressor because you're able-bodied? Um, now, does that give you s- certain privileges and distinct advantage in a lot of things? Absolutely. But where did we get this like this binary between oppressor and oppressed and you can only fit on one side of the spectrum in certain categories. Where does that fit into this whole conversation? Because who gets to define what the categories are there seems to be maybe the most contentious part of this in its modern application. Where did this? Well, I think in general, the the notion was that whatever structures are dominant at the time, what whoever is in power, what the status quo, if you will, that's a that's a phrase that's used. That represents kind of the ruling, the ruling powers. So the major, the major institutions, the major ways of. So that's why there, there's a lot of suspicion of tradition. There's a lot of suspicion of classical ways of doing things, and that's why I think usually power is. You know, if if somebody's holding a kind of a kind of cultural power and force there that's they're associated with with that kind of unjust power. So it's a, again it gets a little hazy. So wait, is is power always unjust in this system? Power is usually represented as problematic in this system. Yes, it's hard to it's hard to to come up it's at least I haven't seen too many indications of a view of power that sees it in positive terms, well, well-used power. And okay. again, and the notion is that we work our way toward a society where it's largely a classless society or something like a classless society where you don't have these kind of major players. Everybody is, is on equal footing, so to speak. I mean, I'm always hesitant to, because you have to speak in sort of generalizations here sure, a little bit, yeah. but 
somewhere along those lines. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for your your you you speaking in generalizations because we asked you to summarize like two days worth of work in about forty five minutes. So that was a Herculean task and a mean thing we did to you there. But I think I found it to be <laughs> helpful, and a lot of other people were will too. Just one last question to make sure I'm hearing you correctly. I think that I've felt that some of my frustration has been not on the modern version in which we can dissect injustice and power, but it's that we almost are operating with categories of sin without categories of forgiveness. And so we have the ability to say what Mm. is wrong, but we don't have within these theories, the mechanisms for restitution, reconciliation, for community, for the collective, for building. So I think that's where my Christian faith on one hand can, can the prophet spoke about injustice. Jesus hammered on and railed against injustice. Um, Yeah. We can point out misused and abused power, but it seems like the thing that the teachings of Christ and his life, death, and resurrection model for us is the ability to go beyond that and say, okay, well then, what does it mean for God to reconcile the world to himself and to make us ambassadors, giving us a ministry of reconciliation and putting back together and having an actual vision for, okay, and this is where we want to go. So I can, I really like the way that you summarize. There, there are parts of this that I can recognize and say that has some validity to it. But I, I dare not succumb to a false anthropology nor a lower theology of anything that would exclude the ability for us to, not by our own bootstraps, but because we have a higher moral purpose and moral vision, um, be able to offer forgiveness to people who have transgressed and to say, Whoop, all right, we're going to fix this up and put this back together and um, work toward justice now. So those are just, um, I'll give you a chance to correct me if I'm wrong on any of that feeling. But I think largely speaking Christianly here is this idea that forgiveness is real, that reconciliation is a real possibility um, that puts me at odds fundamentally with where I see a lot of these streams of thought going. No, I think that's helpful. I'm getting the nod from Cameron. Yeah. Yeah, you're getting the nod. (laughs) Yeah. So thanks for hanging with us. This is the, uh, this is obviously hope giving you some food for thought, help you to process a little bit. A lot more could be said as always, but we've said a lot more than we usually do in an episode here. So thanks for sticking with us. You've been listening to Thinking Out Loud, a podcast where we think out loud about current events and Christian hope. Thanks for listening to Thinking Out Loud. If you'd like to learn more about what we do, book Nathan or Cameron, or if you'd like to support us financially, whether through a one-time donation or on a monthly basis, you can do so on the donate page at www.toltogether.com. That's toltogether.com. And please consider leaving us a five-star rating and sharing this content with your friends. It really does help.